You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The problem with neural networks and AI is you never know exactly what they're going to learn. You know, you, you set them on a task. We, we were building um, this vocal assistive technology um, to build a channel strip and feeding lots of vocal samples into the system. And after a couple of days of training, checked the results. And the problem that we didn't anticipate was that everything we were feeding into the system were vocals that were in tune. And so the AI decided it needed to tune everything, which was not something that we wanted. Oh, yeah. You know, we were, we were looking at, you know, dynamics and the tone of a vocal. And so we had to start from the beginning. So you never know what the machine's going to learn. Oh, man, you're in for a treat today because I'm here with Corey and Siobhan and we have Jonathan Weiner, a, an internationally known and, and revered mastering engineer. If you don't know what that is, he fixes things in mixes. He makes things sound good to your ears. Everything that's on the radio that, that a lot of other people take credit for. Kanye's going, that's me. It's John. <laughs> I learned a lot in this and go check out part one if you haven't yet. But I mean, mastering is this sort of elusive concept that I think we all know is important, but we don't really know what it actually is. So it was really cool to hear kind of the nuts and bolts of what he does and the ins and outs of, you know, working in mastering. Yeah, we got to ask him some questions that made Ben and I go, crap, we've been doing things wrong all these years. I no yeah, idea. I'll just learned all our mistakes. <laughs> when you're using a high pass filter, proceed with caution. Part That's- two with Jonathan Weiner. <laughs> Subscribe. Back for part two with the illustrious mastering engineer, man of many talents. We got into a lot in part one about just his background in music, some of the incredible projects he's worked on. I can't wait to dive into part two now with you. Talk more about some of the other things that you're working on these days. Education, thoughts about anything and everything, as we always do in part two. So welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. I feel like I was just here a moment ago. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, as we you, all were. Haven't changed in a week either. Yeah, Time is merely thing. a construct. Uh, one one thing that I definitely wanted to dive into, and uh, I want to get this right. So you're now a consultant with Isotope. Uh, That's right. I'm the, working on some projects, but I'm I'm no longer a an employee proper. Okay. And uh, so for anyone that's listening, uh, can you just talk a little bit about that company and yes. what they do? And, and then also your your role within it at this point. Yeah. So it's actually, uh, most people identify the company by um, one product or another. I mean, there, there are some things that the company has made that it's especially known for. One of them is this thing called RX, which is a an audio repair and noise reduction system, which it sounds really sort of boring and pedestrian. It's magic. But it, it's, it's like magic. magic. It's magic. It, and it's, in fact, basically, after, you know, given my journey, it is total magic because you can do things you, we never, ever could have imagined, um, like remove horrible sounds in recordings that 
that uh, we never could have removed before. It You can record anywhere, basically, and make the audio usable as part of some music that you, you know. So, um, and then there's another product called Ozone, which is a suite of mastering tools. So when people say Isotope, they, they usually mean one or the other. There's some other products the company makes too. But what's really interesting about the company is that, and this kind of goes, I mean, I was talking about sort of being an iconoclast. You know, it, the, the DNA of the company was born around a, a period of time when, when doing signal processing in computers was not, the, the machines weren't really quite up to snuff yet. And so they were starting to build tools to do something like mastering a record on machines that weren't really quite able to keep up. And frankly, they didn't really understand what it meant to master a record. So everything was sort of amateurish, and yet they just didn't care. They were like, we're, we're going to do this because we know that this is what's coming. And so, you know, fast forward 10 years, and suddenly the products have been refined, and the CPUs have come up, and everybody's like, you know what? You were right. And at that point, the uh, Mark Ethier was a CEO, is a dear friend of mine, and he was like, you know that machine learning and AI is something that's going to show up in lots of different technologies and it's definitely going to show up in music production and everybody was like no way and you know and it really wasn't ready for prime time at that time and yet they sort of embraced it and figured out a way to incorporate ai in ways that actually were kind of educational and really helpful um and people looked at them and said you know what you are right and so there's this ethos of the company which is you know, right now, what we're thinking about doing seems probably, you know, improbable. Like it, it may or may not really be able to happen, but it sure doesn't seem like a good idea. Just wait a minute, because ultimately, we will be able to do some really neat things with with the technology. And that that for me is what made the whole the relationship with the company so amazing. Was being able question. to learn and grow and and see this technology. Come on. So I could talk about the details of any of the things that the products can do, but that that really is the interesting story to me. Sure. So follow my logic here. You seem relatively smart. Um, the, there's another <laughs> well, guy. Already you've, already you've lost me. <laughs> yeah. There's this other guy I I follow I followed and I find him fascinating and and he's in a similar field. There's this dude Ray Kurzweil. Are you aware of him? Oh, the singularity, of course. The singular, the transcendent man. Um. Uh, the singularity is his term for you know eventually that uh, the next stage of evolution that we will emerge um, with uh, intelligent technology versus our biology will change. Now, in particular, he has his father on ice and thinks he can reanimate him. <laughs> yeah, is that crazy? He, he, he must have loved his father. Well, I, I think I don't think he really did though. That's the ironic part. <laughs> um, but. He has his father on ice. And I mean, I know what happened with Ted Williams' head. Um, it, is this something, do you think in our time that he will, he'll bring his dad back? What does this have to do with... This man audio? could be working I, instead of talking I, to us. What kind of a I'm question was that? I'm trying to use it because I think he's the smartest person to answer this question based <laughs> well, on his, what he's just exemplified with his intelligence scale. I trust him. <laughs> the difference between me and Ray Kurzweil is Ray Kurzweil is reflex, reflexively optimistic. I am not. <laughs> is that common among mastering engineers or is that? 
No, I think it's, I think like it's, 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 it's in, it's in my DNA. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know, man. I, I, I'm not sure that I would be so, so optimistic about where we're headed with this. So anyway, back to your question, Corey. Yeah. Wherever that question was, I think my, what the, the gist of it is I'd like to know what your, you know, role is or has been in guiding this company that you had mentioned yeah. is, is very ambitious, but maybe, you know, shoots from the hip a little bit. And maybe are you, are you there to help guide them a little more in the direction of reality? Or? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it sounds That's a, a very diplomatic self- way of asking. Yeah, that. I know. And it sounds a little self-serving, but, but in some ways, yes. I mean, I, I think in some ways I'm a, I, I have been a counterbalance to some of the hubris, right? And so, you know, and, and I, um, I was, and I think the only person in the company who actually had been in the business and in the industry and had the expertise of doing the work. And so I could sort of bring an understanding and a depth of knowledge in, a, in an area that, that I think was complementary and helped. And so there were two main things that I did with the company. One was around education, developing either educational um, videos. There's this Are You Listening series um, that I helped to put together. And a lot of the technical writing and the manuals and things like that I would, I would assist with. Um, and I also, so I helped with education also in the company, consulting back to the development teams about product. And there are some features in some of the software that I, um, I'm very proud of being able to contribute kind of the seed of the idea about, here's a problem, here's an, here's an approach we can take, what can we do here? Well, I, I need to know what those are because I use Yeah, these, can we have examples? Are you allowed to? <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, there's something called tonal balance control. Use it every day. And that, that was born out of a... Um, just something that I, I had experienced in my work over and over again, and then we validated it with machine learning. Um, and what experience? An understanding of what well-balanced sound was. And, and there's, there's sort of a proportional expression in the spectrum from fundamental frequency to harmonics that just seemed to persist across really good-sounding recordings and, and trying to understand what what that was and quantify it so that people could actually compare their work against this this sort of version of good sound and understand where they were deviating from it and then maybe make adjustments to kind of match it and yeah in, in practice just just literally to mention i every day when i'm mixing one of the last plugins in my my mix bus is tonal balance that when i'm getting ready to finish a mix i open that up and it shows me a curve of where my mix sits and I can compare that curve to other songs and other different, um, you know, genres specific elements. So I can see if the bass in my, my, you know, rock mix is way too high for, for competitive uh, mixes in that genre. And it's a good, great reference point uh, Mm -hmm. for someone who works, you know, I I have a, I have a pretty okay project studio in my basement. I've invested a lot in it, but it's still a project studio in my basement. It's not a giant room that can handle, I can't, you know, my low end might not be as, as wonderful as the studios over at MWorks. So having a a tool that can give me a reference in that way has been massively helpful in in dialing in my own I, I love that. I mean, that's exactly the point. 
And what's amazing is that the, the main curve that you see is an averaging over like 10,000 records. Mm. And, and the fact that you can look at 10,000 records and you start to see a trend that points to like the intersection between human behavior and physics in this graph. And it's like, whoa, there is something there. And so anyway, that was, that was one of the, the tools. There's something else called low-end low focus, um, uh, the masking meter that shows up in the neutron eq um those are three that immediately come to mind um anyway i'm i'm very i'm i'm just proud of them i well, mean let me ask that's you this an awesome yeah. tool yeah, yeah it's incredible i have i have an actually on point question okay so now <laughs> i'm ready we have all these plugins right so i have an ssl it's basically it's a mono block uh, out of an e-channel over here i paid like uh, you know thousands for and then there's the identical thing on my screen, I, I, I everyone has it. Looks the same. It kind of sounds the same. Is there going to be a point where that's indiscernible, and that other than that, phys that's a physical thing, and that's uh, you know a thing on my computer that well, they'll be identical. We might already be there, but the thing that you said that, that and this always bothers me is when the thing looks like the thing it's representing, but does it actually work like the thing it's representing? And this is the other thing I love about Isotope, is that rather than create something that looks like something else, it's like, let's try to pull out what's cool about this equalizer or that signal path, and let's offer that technology, but we don't have to make it look like it. We're trying to make something sound cool. See, that, that you know, it takes me back you, to, to when MIDI first came around. I think this is maybe a tangent, but... When MIDI first came out, everybody was, you know, either horrified or celebrating the fact that now we could have an orchestra in a box. And I was like, well, what's interesting about that? We have orchestras. Let's make something new. Let's do something new with this technology. Let's take, you know, marry the sound of a violin and an elephant and, you know, sort of have <laughs> or have some like different control signal trigger the envelope. Of, you know, that's what's interesting. And so... You know, anyway, but to your question, um, the answer is yes. I think that there are emulations or, or copies of the design that happen in DSP that are indistinguishable. But it's not necessarily just because it looks that way. So you have to look under the hood and figure out, you know, how well did they do? It's not a simple thing to build an emulation. Yeah. Um, just just because you mentioned that, and this, this is something that I've looked into just out of curiosity, but it's, you know, and I don't know how many of our, uh, you know, viewers and listeners are into mixing at a, at a very complex level, but what is the process uh, in the most like, you know, kindergarten explanation of taking an analog piece of gear and making an emulation of that in the digital domain? There's sort of two approaches you can take. One is... Um, modeling the on the component level so you know and and if you have a schematic you can understand what happens across a resistor a capacitor and basically code that so that's the sort of and that's very time consuming and doesn't always pan out you just out. hurt ben's brain yeah, i can see it uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing so the other way to do it is more black box like you take input signals and output signals and build a map and set the settings 
in the device in as many different positions as possible, you know, logically sort of stepping through different amplitude values and different settings and measure, compare output to input and then kind of reverse engineer what happened to the signal. So that's the other approach. Um, there are there are some other sort of variations on those themes, but um, that's what you do. And as as those technologies become better and better, is there is it just the the depth at which people are diving into it, or is there you know uh, more complexity added? Um, you know, and especially with like you know plugins with like isotopes, machine learning, is that ever coming into play? Yeah, well, so AI is another way to do it. Like let let the neural network figure it out. Right? I mean, that's pretty wild. It is. It's very sci-fi. <laughs> and it's, it's actually kind of amazing because it, the problem with neural networks and AI is you never know exactly what they're going to learn. You know, you, you set them on a task. We, we were building um, this vocal assistive technology um, to build a channel strip and feeding lots of vocal samples into the system and after a couple of days of training, checked the results, and the problem that we didn't anticipate was that everything we were feeding into the system were vocals that were in tune. And so the AI decided it needed to tune everything, which was not something that we wanted. Oh, yeah. You know, we were, we were looking at, you know, dynamics and the tone of a vocal, and so we had to start from the beginning. So you never know what the machine's going to learn. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. You have to pick your training data carefully and and also like rule out variables that you don't want to have addressed. You're the most qualified person I've ever spoken to to answer this question. Um, there's something that's called the loudness war. I'm sure you know what it was. And, um, you know, when I uh, worked at Best Buy in another life to get my Martin Logan speakers, I got trained on what electrostatics uh, are and, and, and why they're awesome and sound staging and learned all these things that like were totally just words. Um, <laughs> you, you know, I, I learned about this thing called the loudness war and it explained why every time I listened to Oasis, I felt nauseous and it wasn't just because Wonderwall isn't the greatest song ever. Um, can you explain what the loudness war is? And do you think that the, uh, the converse has happened with, uh, you know, the advent of let's say Dre beats? So I think the, the simplest version of the loudness war is to say that, that um, musicians are insecure, A&R people are insecure, and they want to do everything they possibly can to ensure the success of the, the commercial success of what they're putting out. And so they, they don't want to give anybody a reason to discount the record that they're about to listen to. And they certainly don't want to, to give decision makers any reason to discount something. You know, if you're a, 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 a program director at a radio station and you, they're listening to 38 seconds of song after song after song, if one comes on and it's really, really quiet compared to the one before the one after, they might say, ah, it sounds thin and toss it. Now, whether or not that actually would happen is another matter, whether there's substance to that. But that was what was driving this whole phenomenon. So artists were like, I'm gonna, I, I need to make sure my record's loud and loud enough so it stands up to the thing that happens before it and the thing that happens after it in somebody's experience. And that drove people to push more and more level. At the same time, we had technology that allowed us to do it without sounding horrible. 
Because the loudness wars would not have flied during the vinyl era. It would not have flown. Um, <laughs> and, and we didn't have yeah. digital signal processing that allowed us to push that much level. So once we got that and we got rid of vinyl, because you can't push that much level into vinyl, then everybody was kind of hyperinflating the level of their tracks. And so that was kind of what fueled it. And, but I think it was really fear. And, and I think the mistake that people, that the people on the production side made was they assumed that somehow the listener, the consumer, was going to make decisions about what they liked or didn't like based on loudness. Well, it, it turns I, out that's not true. Well, I, I, I got to tell you, I, I, I was working on the retail side of this at, at the time. I remember when the iPod came out and the whole thing was how many songs can you fit on it? So you started dealing with compression. And what people didn't understand about compression is that you're, you're giving up quality of songs. So you're not going right. for 320 where it's, it's, it's basically indiscernible. You're not going to 128, 96. And the other thing is, is everyone's using these little earbuds, which at right. the time were a piece of crap. I mean, literally pieces of paper that you'd put in your ear. So we're, I thought that one component of it was they were catering to the fact that now most people were consuming music with these crappy little earbuds with compressed tunes where basically it, it, it would jump out at you. I don't think so. I mean, I think, I think the one way in which that's true is that the, um, there wasn't very much gain in the earlier portable playback devices. So if you had a quiet tune, you couldn't crank it up high enough to get a satisfying level. Um, but otherwise, um, I, th I mean, I think that's a related but different phenomenon. Because we had loudness wars going back to the 50s, 1950s. I mean, people wanted their record. In fact, you talk about, like, the Beatles were always totally envious of American bands that had their vinyl pressed in the U.S. because U.S. vinyl sounded louder. And, and they were hearing that and were like, wow, we want our records to sound that loud. But, but consumers didn't care. And consumers actually can't hear that difference. Most people can't hear the difference of 3 dB or 6 dB from one record to the next. They don't even know how to spell DB. I mean, right? It's like, you know, so how are they actually going to like have a preference for one or the other? They just love the music that they love. Yeah. From your standpoint as a mastering engineer, um, and the, the way I've kind of seen it is, you know, when, when, when did the real like, you know, when did the term loudness war, you know, that was like over the last, you know, 20 years or so, like that's when like the, the yeah. things, there comes it, a point where you know you only have you got a ceiling and i think that it probably influenced more than anything the way people mix stuff you know to leave that headroom and and finding every way possible to get every instrument as you know so that there wasn't all this conflicting masking stuff so you could push stuff harder and mastering and all that but is have we reached a point where it's now people have kind of hit the the i guess oh, peak yeah. of of you can't go any louder so it, now is yes. it just people adjusting backwards to get you know make it as easy for you to get it loud is that how it works it's definitely changed and there i mean we we hit a peak around the year 2000 2002 um and and we've unwound a little bit from there for a bunch of reasons one is just the the um the sheer proliferation of of digital uh distribution um, there's so many different platforms there's no single point of reference you know, for how loud something's going to sound or how loud something's going to be. And so everybody's been able to relax a little bit 
about how hot to make the record. There's also this thing called loudness normalization, where you know anybody who installs uh, Apple Music, the uh, Apple Digital Music, or anybody who installs Spotify or Tidal and doesn't play around with the settings, everything gets loudness normalized to the same level, and something that's really really hot just gets turned down. And so once artists get wind of that, they're like, oh, if I crank the level too much, it's going to actually sound really crappy when it gets turned down. So let's mm. let's figure out where the sweet well, spot is. Well, that's interesting you say that, because do you remember Metallica's Death Magnetic? Do you remember that record? Of course I do. And I, okay. I know Andrew Sheps, who mixed it, and I know Ted Jensen, who mastered it. And, and Andrew Sheps, his statement about that record was, I won the Loudness Wars. <laughs> <laughs> that's what andrew said okay <laughs> at you, what cost did, at what cost that's, that's what the band I, wanted yeah it's <laughs> that's craziness that's you know amazing. well i remember at that time and this is this is hilarious to me because get, there was a metallica video game like guitar hero where they had a metallica edition and what they had done is sent the discrete right. um multi-track recordings to whatever company made that so you could play these new death magnetic songs it's harmonic and they sounded way the freak better right. way better because it was the stems it was the stems, it was the stems. Right. so and, and there was a petition i think it, i want to say it was six figures long it was crazy to to have metallica remaster it and lars was just like no Right. Well, people have been asking for you know injustice for all for yeah, ever. To it be burned redone. down. They, they, they don't. Uh, yeah. The it tape. burned down in that building. There's no more injustice for all. There's no chance. Yeah. Yeah. There's so, a fire. So we're we're in a different place, and and it'll keep changing. I mean that if there's you know if there's one thing I've I've come to understand is that if you if there's something you don't like about what's going on now, like ten years from now, it's going to be different. You may dislike something different. But it's going to change. Um, but it's kind of nice. I mean, there's definitely more more latitude as far as level. You know, one of my favorite rec loudness stories, I was working on a record for a band from Greece, and this is probably right around 2000, where, you know, you're kind of nervous if, if somebody brought something to you and you mastered it, and it didn't leave relatively hot. You figured they were going to be unhappy and, you know blah 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 and so i i mastered this record for the band from greece and they sent the record back and they said it sounds great but could you turn it down a little and i was like <laughs> okay so i went through another iteration of the mastering the same thing happened we went through four rounds and i turned the record down to like 1986 level and they were yeah. like that's that's perfect <laughs> and i said well okay but what's going on i'm like aren't you worried and they said we have the loudest record ever because you can take our record put it in the car and turn it all the way up and it sounds great <laughs> and this is the thing is if you don't push level like that it, the, the sound relaxes and you can crank it like back to the old acdc the label on back in black is this record was made to be played loud if you want to play the record loud don't push that much level into it it'll sound better loud that's so interesting. Yeah. I was going to, and I, I was worried about sounding like a total idiot, but to me, as somebody that doesn't know much about the mixing or mastering process, I would think, yeah, I mean, I would probably end up just 
setting something to where I want to hear it anyway. And I want it to sound good at whatever level I set it to for the comfort of my ears. So that I I think I guess that's where the artistry is, is making it sound good for everybody in their own comfortable setting. Yeah. I mean, Benny sort of pointed to that when he talked about the early iPods. We We lost control of the playback level. Like the consumer just forgot it was there. And so now everybody was expecting the music to come up to the level that was set in those things. And, um, and we're still kind of there. I mean, it, it's sort of a pain in the butt to adjust the playback from your phone. But the yeah. thing is, but, but Apple, here's Apple. I watched this documentary on Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine on yep. The Chosen Ones. Have you seen it? Mm-mm. I highly recommend it. Uh, I, I highly, highly, highly recommend It's actually, I mandate that viewing to anybody who cares about music. <laughs> I'm serious. It's it's that it's that level. It's incredible. It's about Dr. Dre um, and Jimmy Iovine becoming friends. And if you know anything about Jimmy Iovine, he's one of I the do. most incredible uh, producers and engineers, and just like smart dude that got himself in the room. But from what I gathered, first off, it's a giant Apple commercial. The whole thing, and it's an it's a brilliant Apple commercial. But it's basically we invented Beats. We have now brought being an audiophile back to being a thing because now everyone goes in the subway. Jimmy Iovine used to put beats on people's heads when they would leave the office because, yeah. you know, and take pictures of Gwen Stefani and the black eyed peas and all that sort of stuff. But now you can't get away with those with little ear buds. You get if you have in-ear monitors, I've seen in-ear monitors that boast having 16 drivers in your ear. I don't mm-hmm. know why the hell that would ever matter, like how you could possibly have a crossover designed to have 16 different drivers in your ear matter. But like we've gone from the opposite of having these little crappy earbuds that are made of literally paper to now, do you think people care more about sound, like let's say than 2000? I, I don't know, maybe, maybe they do. I mean, clearly companies like Apple see value in marketing sound like fidelity and good sound like kind of going back to what i was saying earlier about like phone manufacturers caring about sound it it's one angle to market to the consumer and especially if it becomes like a luxury kind of lifestyle item then that that idea is very consonant with getting those products out into the world so they can justify making the investment and coming out with something that actually sounds better I, Do you I, feel like I some have, of the big... Oh, no, go ahead, go ahead. No, I just have a new Apple laptop, um, and the speakers in it sound actually pretty damn good. I mean, I wouldn't master on them. You know, I wouldn't even listen... I mean, I have nice speakers at home, but they sound pretty damn good. Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to ask, is if you thought that some of the major consumer brands were doing a good job of approximating at least good sound... Like in a way that your ears would enjoy, you know, are are people actually getting good sound in a lot of these products that we're buying? Yeah, I do think so. They're definitely better. Definitely. Well, your, your insight on this is, is definitely, it's appreciated and it's very on point. And, uh, one thing I want to bring up since we didn't get to it in the last, uh, episode is that you actually have a book out. Uh, <laughs> which I just purchased on Amazon. Oh. Uh, I look forward to getting it. So Ooh, I'm going to uh, buy that for yeah, Brock. Audio, audio mastering essential practices. So okay. uh, you are sharing your knowledge with others, which is a nice thing, and not, not just with us, but you're sharing with other people. Um, can you talk about the, the the reasoning behind putting all this, you know, these thoughts to paper? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I will say writing a book is not a great way to make money. 
So I did, I did, I, I did Can not. Can you tell d- us about that? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, unless you're Stephen King or something. Um, so, but, but serious, I mean, there were a bunch of motivations for doing it. Um, but one of them for me was when I started out, I, I encountered a lot of uh, many people who seemed to be worried that if they shared their knowledge, they would somehow lose something. They would lose the next gig. They would give away their secrets that somehow they would lose. And, and I found that it became very difficult for me to, to, to learn from, from people who I respected and who I wanted to learn from. Uh, and it wasn't their job to educate me always. So I kind of knew, you know, if you ask somebody a question, it was kind of on them whether or not they wanted to take the time to answer it. Um, but at some point, and I, I also had experiences where people actually just obscured the, the real information. They just didn't want to let you know. And I just vowed that I was never going to become that person. You know, I wanted to be able to share if I knew something and somebody was interested in it and they asked me about it, I was going to tell them everything I knew about it and be dead honest about it and as transparent as possible. And, and it's a little scary to do that, but, but I became more and more confident in the fact that when people come to work with me, for instance, it's because of the combination of all of my experiences and what I bring to the table. It's not about what I know how to do with a particular knob you know, in my studio. So that was one of the motivations for doing it. And there are just lots and lots of people who are hungry for the information. And, and there's a lot of bad information out there too. And I thought, well, you know, I can do my part and at least sort of put forward something that I think is, is correct and has some integrity to it. And can you, can you tell us some bad information that you find you hear a lot and, and maybe just yeah. like dispel oh, well. it? Because most of my information I've been told is bad, but I guess that's subjective, right? <laughs> well, I mean, some of it is, is sort of more, you know, sort of weirdly technical. But like there, if, if, there are many articles that have been published that start with when you're getting ready to mix something, put a high pass filter on every channel. That is, I do this. That is terrible information. That is wrong. <laughs> that is bad. You are in hurting your music immediately by doing that if you do it without thinking. What was the source of that, do you think? Or, like, I, where I you know think I, that heard that. I heard that. I heard that 100% when I've I started also, doing this. Yeah. Um, I've, I've, I've since backed off on that, but that was 100%. And that, that's why I talked about the, I've community, been doing the it. communities and the echo chambers that, that you find if you're teaching yourself online, you have to be careful. Because yep. I found some information that everyone's like, oh yeah, obviously, if you want tight low end, get rid of the low end and everything except the one thing you need. And I, I've since, through practice over the years, learned not to do that. But that's, that's I mean, I can thing. demonstrate... And, and so how I came to understand how bad an idea that was is I kept on hearing the same problems show up whenever I imp- pulled up a high pass on a record. And I was like, okay, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> and so I took a deep dive into it and I could demonstrate for you the, the weird things that happen to signals, the, the, the way time is completely like shredded and signals are, are you know, the wavefront is broken up and you lose clarity and the, the imaging goes totally wacky. Like, you know, again, your audience may not care about this, but for those that do, I, I'm I, the I audience right this. now. 
No, I'm not. Listen, I, I need, I okay. need, to okay. I need to sign yeah. off right now and change some mixes immediately because I feel yeah. like I'm, <laughs> I'm distorting the space-time continuum, and I'm afraid that I've lost all sense of everything. I know it sounds so scary when it's described. It's like everything is just a ride. What a bad idea, man! But it's. I, here's the point I think I would make is that if any, if you read something where people, where somebody says, always do this. Or never do that. Mm-hmm. Stop reading that article and move on. That is that is Good obviously tip. bad information because it is not in the context of what you're working with, what you're trying to do. That that is kind of the, the bottom line here. Um, so, you know, there, there's there are other versions of that, but that's just an example, I think, of of bad advice and and a lot of it. You know, Paul, you got to go on more. I, I, I've already feel like you've taught me so many things that I'm embarrassed by. Yeah, can I, can I, can I throw some things at you that I, that I know are the most popular searches for sure. new engineers and mixers, and maybe you can give a little perspective and, and, and a little guidance there. So one of the things that I think is the biggest thing uh, uh, that I, I know from the moment I started to this day is as a mixing engineer, not in a phenomenal studio. What are the steps to get a competitive, clean, low end in your mix? Because I'm sh- I'm sh- I know my mastering engineer that I work with all the time is always constantly like, hey, bro, like, <laughs> what are you doing over there? Like, <laughs> 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 Why don't you calm down a bit? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, the obvious answer is, can you even hear what's going on, first Apparently of all? Apparently not. Because if you well, if you don't have a, a good enough listening environment, you can't even hear what you're doing. Can you so describe it, a good enough listening environment? Because I'm curious. Because maybe some people just don't understand. Like, what are the important elements to make sure that you absolutely have to have a good listening environment? Some sense of uh, like proportionality, where you have an um, even tone from the the very low end all the way through the top. So there's no nonlinear sort of weird stuff going on and no resonances that are horrible every room has resonances but no horrible resonances um and and a monitoring system that will support that so you know you 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 really can't do a great job getting your low end right if you have if you're listening through a yamaha hs5 exactly what i was using for so long and i would send the mixes to to my husband he was like why is there so much bass because you can't hear it right it's not your fault it's not your fault i'm also terrible at mixing so it was totally my fault but anyway going (laughs) okay it's it's totally your fault but it's also yeah um, also yes but i i relate to that uh, you know, it's. I, I think the analogy that people often use or the metaphor is, you know, if you're if you're looking through dirty glasses, you can't really see what's there, right? Or if you're looking through tinted glasses, it just you can't really see the colors that are in the thing that you're creating or that you're painting or whatever it is. Same thing with with sound. It if if what you're hearing is distorted, then you're responding to this distorted thing. How can you how can you do a great job? But, and you know, the, the easy antidote to that, because making a, a really great room is expensive and time-consuming and you really have to be willing to commit, is at least have a great pair of headphones that give you a reality check. And great pairs of headphones, there are examples like brands and models, but you're going to spend at least three or $400 mm-hmm. for a pair of headphones that 
will let you hear the low end with some amount of accuracy and they're not not what do you beats. what are you rock what are you rocking not right beats. now are those not are those beats. those hd 650s you're wearing is that these are these are the 600s oh yes. 600s uh, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah they're sort of the baseline i only have five pairs of these <laughs> well then wait but there's a what's the whole concept of if you can make a, a a pair of ns10 sound good then you're 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 mixing for what most good people question. are going to listen yeah. through yeah let me let me ask like, you a question you, let me ask you a question do ns10 sound good not really no so so what does it mean to make something sound good on something that doesn't sound good i was hoping to ask you the same question <laughs> <laughs> But you just answered it, right? No, it but this makes, brings up the question. Makes, it makes no, no sense. But it let me ask you this no question. Sense. Yeah, like what? What is? What is the importance of studio monitors? Because I, I mean, I'm very much on the outside of this, but having observed people that I know in mixing, her husband it, has insanely amazing folk. How much were those? I wasn't things? going to name anybody, but it, I feel Focals. like it's a slippery. Brock's the yeah, best. he has Focal Trio Elevens. Who, and who's your husband? Brock Richards. He's um he's a guitar player and he's I mean he's a, he Star mixes Set. as well. Um but I the you know very I remember successful band Star Set. <laughs> yeah, with we the new single a band with together Breaking as well. Benjamin. Breaking Benjamin Thank and Star you, Set blow, blowing up Spotify. You're blowing up Spotify. <laughs> it's only a matter before you're number 1, so it's kind of obnoxious that you're not even mentioning it when I'm I feel like the Jewish mother like tell them you dance. <laughs> Well, thank you, Ben, for the plug. But but I remember when he was looking into upgrading his studio monitors, and it was a very slippery slope. It's like, okay, I'm going to go to this level, and then it became this level, and this level, and this level. And it, I, I was just always curious, as somebody that didn't really know enough to make any criticism or comment, like, you know, how important are the monitors? And is, do you have to go to an insane level to be able to hear what you need to hear? Or is it the room? Like, what is, like, yes. so what is it, the limit there? I mean, first of all, insane is a... I'm sorry, insane is so nondescript. Quantify yeah. insane for me. Um, how much money we're we talking about here? Say, all right, here's the thing. You got like your, say, 4,000 a pair, 8,000 a pair, 12,000 a pair, then you get your 40,000. Yeah. Right, you okay. Know, or more. A Thank pair. you, Corey. I think once you're, once you're in the neighborhood of eight, you're, you're in the ballpark of you should be able to, like, no compromise. You Shit. should be able to get everything you need there. <laughs> I four, go spend four, some money. Before you're close. <laughs> okay. You're close, but not no, no cigar. Okay. But, it, but to go to your so Siobhan. Yep. The you cannot completely divorce the monitors from the room. Right. Uh, and if you have a great room and put monitors in the right place, there are lots of monitors that will sound great. And if you don't have a great room and don't put the monitors in the right place, you can spend forty grand and they will sound like crap. So you you just brought up yes. a huge point. So I I spent I have. Uh, a surround sound electrostatic Martin Logan set up in my living room, which I consider to be the bee's knees. In fact, I have a Bob Carver amp that powers all of it. My fiance constantly laments when we have an, a 75 inch television that has beautiful sound. In fact, it, it disconcertingly nice sound that comes from that. <laughs> Why wouldn't we use that instead of these electrostatic panels? And the thing, and they're hybrids. They're not full electrostatic panels. So I'm not well, you that can't cool. you can't get low end out of. No, no, unless they're the size of a door so that you can as the, when it's a door size. But my question to you is, I listen to these things and I've listened to some crazy, crazy $20,000 systems. I've, I mean, monitors, all that. Right, right. Now you have to set them up properly. So if you go into a Best Buy and you go listen to electrostatic Martin Logans, they always sound terrible because they're set up horribly wrong in every Best Buy. 
is that a better sound that I'm actually hearing? Because that's how I feel. Because I feel like I've gone and heard some of these crazy $10,000, $20,000 systems. But when I sit in the sweet spot in my living room in front of my 75-inch television and watch Jurassic Park, it's better than any studio I've heard for under a crazy amount of money. Yeah. No, I, I think that what you're saying makes total sense. The only thing, if, you, if you've got something that's well-engineered, the only thing that you might get by spending a lot more money for better construction is better transient response and the ability to handle really high SPL, sound pressure level, really loud stuff. Oh yeah, no, really it's already too loud stuff. for the missus. She doesn't so, like it. So, but otherwise, otherwise, you're 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 doing fine. So, in other words, should you should you buy the monitor to fit the room, or should you choose a monitor and then no, then no. choose the build room? the room, <laughs> build the room around the monitor, Siobhan. Yeah, no, it's more, it's more about it's more okay. about the room. It's more about okay. the room. So, but okay. you know, back to sort of Corey, you asked the question about low end. I feel like I never really answered it. No, I mean, I mean, um, there's. Here's the thing. It's not an easy answer. I understand that. I'm just saying that's that's the question that every new producer, engineer that's in their bedroom and then just got Fruity Loops goes, wait, why do my mixes, why is the low end so bad? Right. And, you know, you probably don't have to deal with it as much, but I'm sure a lot of master oh, engineers, maybe we don't know. Okay. We're very, <laughs> Let's very hear about well it. Continue. Let's hear it. what I have to deal with. <laughs> I know. I know you don't. Ha I don't know if you have the because there's. I know mastering engineers that that are you know in the beginning of their careers, and when you're in the beginning of your career in this industry, you take what you can get, and you work with anyone that's willing to work with you, and you do the best you can with that. And so I, you know, I went through this over the years, learning to mix, and you know, uh, I'll give a shout out uh, Tom Waltz, Waltz Mastering. I sent him some Tom! of the most the most garbage mixes imaginable when I was starting out, and I, and I was just like, here you go, make this sound good and he was nice enough to be like well why don't you try first right. off turning that <laughs> kick drum up down about 10 db right and uh <laughs> and then we'll move on from there so that's that's what i mean in terms of like you know hopefully i would hope that you know working at a, at a certain level the the problems become more detailed and less overt but i'm sure that low end is a problem everywhere i have a friend who travels around the world building studios in these mm. incredible locations and he's told me that he's built multi-million dollar studios in rooms that they're not designed well you know yeah. the room itself wasn't designed well so he's putting these crazy osberger you know speakers in and he, they he, the subs are blowing out the room and the client's pumped because it's loud but he's like right you, you, you know you spent all this money but you didn't do the room right so this is what you're dealing with so it's a problem i think at every level that's right you know maybe one of the things that how it's funny like people used to install large format consoles in their rooms because they were kind of marketing pieces it's like you walk into a room with you know this piece of furniture with a sea of knobs and it's like whoa you must be serious but I think now that's that what people Corey are thought when we went to the studio in Florida. <laughs> it, it is pretty awesome. He was bamboozled. He walked in. He was like, "This is a real studio." That's a, that's a big ass console. Yeah. So it was an awesome console, though. In his defense, nothing wrong with the console, right? But now that people are sort of working more and more remote, maybe you, you could sort of spend the money where it matters, right? Because because mm -hmm. these days, you know, if you walk into a studio that has consoles like that, usually you see. If anything, just two faders pushed up, which yeah. is the, the and you go, wow, the, the, the air the conditioning output. <laughs> yeah, from, the air conditioning yeah. bill must be amazing, like right. amazingly high. <laughs> that, well, that's absolutely true. When I went from Class A amplifiers to Class D amps, 
in my studio, my electricity bill went down about 25%. Yeah, wow. I believe it, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that is really common, though. That's funny you mentioned the, the you know, especially there's a lot of like hip, hip hop and rap studios. And those guys are making absolute bank in that industry right now. And, and they get they get a hit and they get all this money and they get the sickest SSL or Neve board. It's crazy. And then it's basically, a, you know, a nice big laptop stand and then two right, faders right. on the left that they put up there. <laughs> can, I, can I tell you that God, God, this is how God told me, the universe told me, they gave me a redo. I was in my studio. I had bought a Control 24. Remember those things? Oh, yeah. They're a giant mouse. It was so terrible. <laughs> so first off, when I bought it, I thought you could plug microphones in it. And like Zoolander, where I'm like, oh, the files are in the computer. I see these DB25 connections on the back of it. Mm. And I'm like, what do you mean? It has to go into like a patch bay. So I have to spend $10,000 more to get everything in. <sighs> then once I get this thing turned on, and it looks like Jay-Z's basement and all that. I try to get a, a, a drum sound. All the drums are blowing out everything, even with the 15 decibel pads. I called DigiDesign or Avid or whoever owned it at that point. They flew a guy across the country. He's like, oh, yeah, no, all of these are, are way too loud right out of the box. He put on 20 decibel pads by opening this thing up in my drum room, putting it all back together. <clears throat> and even then, it was still kind of too loud. So then, about five years after that, when I'm sitting there lamenting that this thing's taking up my whole desk and I fucking hate it and I wish I had spent all that money on different things... There was a, a water main right over my desk in my basement that I had just redone, and it exploded, and it actually, uh, <laughs> gallons a minute, the whole ceiling <laughs> collapsed onto this Control 24 as I was about to go Your out prayers for Chinese answered. food. <laughs> yeah, and me being the crafty person that I am, I had uh, insurance. And Are you going to admit actually, to insurance fraud on the show again? No, there, there's no insurance fraud. In fact, they flew a guy from DigiDesign no to bear... To, because my, my Control 24 turned on after that, but I told them it had cancer, and it was only a matter of time before it was going to die, and that you don't know electronics, that I don't trust this thing. It's totally compromised. And they had to fly, they paid, my insurance company paid to fly a guy from, from uh, DigiDesign. The same dude, he was like, hey, nice to see you again. Yeah, man, what's the problem? Got what is the point of this story? Gallons of water. Uh, the point... <laughs> The point of the story is I got rid of this stupid giant large thing. I got a redo and now I just have these stupid little avid little box things which are a waste of money too. And all I, I needed is just like little little inputs that are like my Neve input, my UA in a, input, my... Preamps. Uh, preamps. Yeah, preamps. Those things. All I needed was preamps and a but good talk. But that is teaching people how to produce. Yeah. That's all I needed. All that extra stuff is just like a giant mouse. That's what it is. So it sucks. you were, you were saying it. earlier, John, that like people weren't willing to share their information. Ben is willing to share all sorts of information, none of Even which is accurate or, or correct. But he's, Ben is yeah. like, I've been hired to teach somebody. Like, how does one do this? You have to admire his enthusiasm. Oh, no God. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. No, it's... <laughs> but yeah, so, so the point is uh, mm. spend... At least eight grand on speakers and get a really nice room, and your low end will be dope. Uh, I think that's this, that's this the is gist triggering the me so hard right now because Brock is in the process of building an entire studio desk. And when you mentioned the DB twenty five, what I don't even know the right name, but I, it was like he had a whole conversation with me that I didn't understand about how he had to have this whole patch bay and the thing. And I'm sitting there, my eyes are glazing over, and I'm doing my best to try and understand. Tom, what it's t like. tell him don't do it. 
it's, it's done. It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's stupid. Well into war. So it's not uh, stupid, but it's, in, it's still stupid. Outside, <sighs> outside of low end, um, and maybe this is a better way to ask it. In terms of your experience over the years, what is what are the most common issues that arrive? on your desk when you get something, even from, you know, maybe, you know, bigger mixers or, or, or more established mixers? Well, I mean, the, the, you know, less is more and the, and bigger and more established mixers know this, that, that it's really kind of about getting stuff in, in good shape, figuring out the arrangement. I mean, fig, like the editing that you do before you even start mixing is going to make the rest of it better. And when, when people, you know, have so like too many ingredients for the soup and they're like, well, I have to put everything in there because I have the stuff that creates problems. You know, there's massymphony.com. Everyone check out our new song has 135 <laughs> tracks. How many, how yes. many layers of trombone do we put on this last week? Was it 10? Uh, yeah. I was just editing that oh. today actually. And there's, yes. Yeah, so we, we, uh, we, uh, we did not heed that advice. Um, flute, the flute yes. was good. The flute was good. <laughs> um, yeah, and then, you know, like, less is always more. Like, and when you have a choice, I, I guess this is the thing. Like, people sometimes feel like they, they need to be the hero or, like, do something to make something sound good as opposed to just figuring out at what point something sounds good and stop. And, and if you're just doing stuff and you're just making it sound different but no better, like, what's the point of that? So when you're at that point where you make something as as it's as good as it can be, just stop. That's amazing. That's one thing I love about classical music in particular is it's like everything is, I mean, there was no amplification. It's all about the arrangement and everything is exactly as it should be. If you change something, it's not better. If you add stuff, it's not better. It's like the 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 absolute minimum number of things that needs to happen for it to be like completely full on its own. It's like a Lady Gaga song too. I mean, there, yeah. some of those arrangements are so economical and so spare, and they're Billie so Eilish. Ro- mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like you know, three so, tracks. <laughs> I mean, it's not easy. All and it's not easy to do that. You mm-hmm. know, I'm not saying it. You know that that it's easy, but but I think it. There's a truth there. Um, so. You know, so people overprocess stuff all the time. And the more EQ you add and the more signal processing you add, the more fuzz and the more blurriness you get and the, the less clear and, and ultimately the less emotional mm-hmm. the thing is that you, that you end up producing. Yeah, Corey, I think, I think, I think you're bust out most of those tracks. <laughs> Man, you got blurry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but the, too much. This it, it was very poignant it, when you're talking about adding too much stuff. It gets starts to get fuzzy. That's like Ben's yeah. just oh, I, he's fuzzed it himself. Was a metaphor, but it really happened. <laughs> totally lost on me. I'm sorry. No, that was beautifully done, Benny. I I appreciate that. Don't I don't think it was. Don't encourage him. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Don't be. No, I, I think the the most important thing you mentioned is how important the arrangement is, uh, and that's definitely a hard uh, learned lesson from my. And, uh, you yeah. know, especially with like the Lost Symphony stuff. Uh, and that's that I don't know. I, mean, I don't know if you guys talked about it last night, but that is our band. And that's that's the thing we do. And it's yeah, it's it's basically a more is more situation. And we've we've never been. It's been a fun. I think it's taught me more, actually, as as a an engineer and mixer, because there is way too much shit in there. But yeah good luck getting rid of any of it so it's more like how can i make this work and and fi- and, pr- and problem solving from that standpoint that has helped me when i work with my other clients producing you know more uh uh 
tame, Conventional. more, more uh, conservative uh, productions with, you know, just the st standard kind of rock setup. I've found it helps me immensely knowing how to fit, you know, 200 tracks into a mix and then going down to 30 tracks and then having that freedom to, to play with that has been hugely helpful. Uh, so as we, as we wrap up here, uh, are there any like big lessons that you've come away with, you know, in your career, you know, and this is big picture stuff, I guess, but, but stuff that, that has helped you or, or stuff that you try to communicate to people you're working with that, uh, makes, you know, your life easier or their life easier or, or stuff that you've gained in your experience working in this area. You, you said something earlier or we touched on something. I can't remember whether it was this last episode or this one, but, but about, about let, being able to let go of stuff and not overthinking it, not overworking things. And, and, and really, ultimately, you have to do that in order to get better and progress. So that's, that's certainly, I think, it, it's hard to convince somebody of that when they're in the midst of the angst of like, oh my God, but, <laughs> um, but it's so true. Um, and the other thing, I mean, just sort of career-wise, the thing that's always kind of blown me away is you never know what you're going to end up doing next. You never know. I Like, I've, I've, you know, I was setting up video webcasts for the American Bar Association before there were video webcasts, and I didn't want to do that, but it just, like, fell in my lap. And, you know, I ended up just sort of having all of these different projects appear just in the course of doing the things that I was doing. And it's because, you know, you always show up, you're interested, you're curious, you talk to people, and who knows? And, and this is kind of what motivates me. Like, I don't know what's going to be next, and I'm kind of excited about it. That's amazing advice. I, I think a lot of people feel like they have to fall in a certain lane, and I think it's easing a little bit. But, uh, you know, as a musician, it's totally cool to to have all sorts of random, unconventional side thing. I mean, I think it informs your perspective on everything. You know, it all kind of comes together in its totally. own way. That's right. I mean, I think it's cool to have a plan so that you know what you're going to do tomorrow, but just be ready, yes. you know, that when the person calls you from Seoul, Korea and says, I want you to come over and work in my studio, you know. Or Nuno that's flying over. Or yeah. Nuno that's <laughs> flying <laughs> over or whatever. It's like, yeah. Sure. Okay. Yes. Let's see. Let's see what it what it's gonna take to do that thing. Yeah. That's no. It's great advice. And uh, listen, John, we appreciate you taking the time. Uh, for me yeah, personally, so selfishly, I've learned a ton. Uh, I, I can't wait to get the book. Yeah, Amazon. Says I just it'll be ordered here it. I actually it'll ordered it while Saturday. we were on this. Wow! Yeah, I just here. paid like six bucks. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> Can I leave you a tip on Amazon? I wish that I could like add more dollars. Yeah. It's the bump you get from being on twenty twenty. It's you know they have like a the, $6 all those boost. the six dollar yeah. bump. It's like the, the, all those different podcast bumps that get you like millions of followers. You get like six bucks, and the, and you're the gonna, amount of you clicking like I needed. The, the, the amount of clicking I need to do tonight to get rid of all these high-pass filters. At least I learned, I learned He's already how to started. Make, I learned how to make routing folders this year because Corey told me well, how here's to the so thing. I can put them let on me, the Let me just preface route. this. Ben needs those filters because while he's tracking in one room, he has the sub-blasting in the control room so you can hear no, I, the, I the low the end of the previous tracks building up. I, own, they, they I do don't have use their the utility. monitors. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have the monitors at all on Like, why does anymore? this flute track have so much, like, 30 hertz? I just don't understand. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah. So, guys, check it out. The name of the book, Audio Mastery.
mastering essential practices check it out i i will review it in our very next episode uh and and let you know if it's any good and i I just (laughs) ordered it i'm gonna make brock read it yeah make brock read it i'm gonna i'm gonna read it to brock you just ordered oh yes yes so i am very excited about this i'm i'm touched Listen, you should tell to... Amazon they should allow tips. Yeah, I guess I'll have to write the second edition finally. Yeah. I thought you wanted yes. David Ellison to, to send you coffee. So I do want I, I David Ellison to send me coffee. I think that you should get some Rock and Rose, although he sent me three different types. So this is the premium light roast coffee, but you can go to Ellison Coffee Company. Um, it's delicious. I recommend it to all people, uh, whether you listen to heavy metal or whether you just live and breathe and drink coffee. Ellison Coffee Company. You know, I'm going to start a coffee company. You do should. I think that seems like a great idea. Everyone well, loves coffee, and if they don't, well, they're weird. As soon as you do, you come back on our show, and then we'll, we'll review it. <laughs> we uh, will review it, and we'll we will do, share we'll do it. We'll do a tasting. Yeah, absolutely. I like that idea. Okay. Uh, uh, so Does it depend coffee tasting? on what coffee, coffee you, uh, maker we use to make it, though? Because what if I make it in my Keurig with my K-cup thing, and you make it mm. on your whatever du jour cool thing you have? People listen to MP3s, man. It's, you know? <laughs> yeah. it's like whatever all mine are 320 <laughs> all right all well, right thank we, you i know i know we've kept you up. you know it's it's late on a weeknight we appreciate your time uh no, guys check awesome. out mworks mastering cambridge and and everything else we'll have links in the description uh and i really hope that you can come back and hang out again at some point because this has been uh selfishly one of my favorite episodes and, so. and, and it's been going- really fun if, if you're like some Thank rich prince in Lebanon that wants to come to Berkeley School of Music because you think you can play guitar and you're thinking about going into this sort of thing, here's your new professor. Suck up. Watch the episode. Two-zero-dash-d.com. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you next week. Thank you, as always, for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-d.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode number 151, featuring Dave Fortman, producer of bands like Evanescence, Slipknot, and Godsmack. Check it out. But little did we know that four months after the release, or no, during, I mean, not even that, just, I mean, during the release, four months after the single came out, that we would all be in, in, in situations of completely changed lives, man. You know, mine was like, it, I mean, geez, I was sitting there going like, fuck, what is happening right now? <laughs> like, it can't keep, it can't keep selling 100,000 copies a week. You know, we can't stay in the top 100. Where are we at week. right now? Just, just for my Jewish tabulation. So yeah. what are we, uh, what are we at now for sales, Dave? Uh, we're looking at probably 18 million worldwide. We're working on eight in the state. Oh, only 18? Yeah, just I thought you were going to say like 25. You're going to knock off Stroller or something. <laughs> This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. 
Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday.